Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of the Rocky Mountain Mason podcast. I am Ben Williams, your host, publisher and editor-in-chief at the Rocky Mountain Mason magazine, and today I'm pleased to bring to your attention a brief account, well, two accounts, of the meeting of the Queen of Sheba and Solomon, King of Israel. If you like this content, please consider becoming a patron. It takes time and effort to bring you this content. Your support would be greatly appreciated. You may support the show and become a patron by visiting our website at rockymountainmason.com. Also, please consider subscribing to our magazine, The Rocky Mountain Mason, available also at rockymountainmason.com. Subscription is just $33 a year and entitles you to four 64-page, high-quality, glossy magazines sent to you in the mail. We're working on another publication called The Esoteric Mason, which may be of interest to philosophical masons. Our first issue is coming out very soon. Visit esotericmason.com for more information. Solomon and Sheba. The affair of the Queen of Sheba and Solomon, King of Israel, is one of the most famous romances of the ancient world. While only a brief mention is made in the Bible, in the first book of Kings, the legendary story of their meeting has inspired apocrypha, literature, even movies. This podcast details two of the most famous accounts of this meeting, and how, according to one apocryphal book, the Ark of the Covenant was taken to Ethiopia by the illegitimate son of Solomon and the Queen, Menelik I, and a replica left in the Sanctum Sanctorum in the Temple of Solomon. Our first source for this tale is the Ethiopian book, the Kebra Nagast, The Glory of Kings. It was probably written about the 14th century in Ethiopia, in Giza. The colophon of the book says that it was translated from Coptic, and alleges an, early, an earlier historicity back to the Council of Nicaea in 325. However, it is more likely that it was translated into Giza from an Arabic predecessing document, or Vorlage. It relies heavily on Old Testament sources and is taken as a historical account of the founding of the House of the Rulers of Ethiopia. It likely contains older material as part of an oral tradition. The Kebra Nagast presents the most thorough account of the meeting between the Queen of Sheba, known as Makeda, and Solomon, King of Israel. Now our other source, offering a more colorful and magical tale, will be the Quran. 
The meeting is told by the Kebra Nagast. Solomon had already become famous across the Levant for his wisdom. He presided over a kingdom where, the Kebra Nagast informs us, peace and harmony prevailed to such a degree that all visitors there marveled. I quote, There was neither a thief or a robber in his days. Solomon had many visitors, some to witness the kingdom in its majesty, still more to trade provisions for the construction of the temple, which, we might imagine, was a major economic activity in the region. Solomon had sent out word across the ancient world that he would gladly exchange gold for goods and services, and many merchants deigned to partake of his generosity. One such merchant was, I quote, a man of great understanding, a man called Tamarin, who, I quote, comprehended the wisdom of Solomon and marveled thereat. He was a well-off man, a man of means. The Kebra Nagas tells us he used to load 520 camels, and he possessed about 370 ships. We don't know what Tamrin came to sell Solomon, but apparently he stayed in Jerusalem several months to witness and marvel at Solomon's undertakings. Quoting the Kebra Nagast, He watched carefully, so that he might learn how the king made answer by his word, and understand his judgment, and the readiness of his mouth, and the discreetness of his speech, and his manner of his life. For Solomon opened his mouth in parables, and his words were sweeter than the purest honey. His whole behavior was admirable, and his whole aspect pleasant. Eventually, Tamarin was dismissed, and he returned to Sheba in modern-day Ethiopia, where he was pleased to relate his experiences to the queen, as she, too, had already heard much to wonder about this wise king of Israel. Quoting the Kebra Nagast, and he told her how Solomon administered just judgment, and how he spake with authority, and how he decided rightly in all the matters which he inquired into, and how he returned soft and gracious answers, and how there was nothing false about him, and how he appointed inspectors over the seven hundred woodmen who hauled the timber, and the eight hundred masons who hewed the stone, and how he sought to learn from all the merchants and dealers concerning the cunning craft and the working thereof, and how he received information and imparted it twofold, and how all his handicraft and all his works were performed with wisdom. According to the Kebra Nagast, this went on for some time, with Tamrin relating stories of Solomon each morning, until the queen, herself possessed of wisdom, for the love of wisdom is the beginning of wisdom, determined to go to Israel to meet Solomon herself. For I desire wisdom, the queen said, and my heart seeketh to find understanding. I am smitten with a love of wisdom, and I am constrained by the cords of understanding. For wisdom is far better than treasure of gold and silver, and wisdom is the best of everything that hath been created on the earth. So, with an enormous entourage, she embarked through the desert, and after some time arrived in Israel as Solomon was working at the building of the house of God. Solomon was apparently quite hands-on with his supervisory role in building the temple, imparting his wisdom to the masons. The Kebra Nagast tells us that, he showed the workmen the measurement and weight and the space covered by the materials, and he told the workers in metal how to use the hammer and the drill and the chisel, and he showed the stonemasons the angle and the circle and the surface, and everything was wrought by his order, 
and there was none who set himself in opposition to his word. For the light of his heart was like a lamp in the darkness, and his wisdom was as abundant as the sand. I look upon thee, said the queen to Solomon, and I see that thy wisdom is immeasurable, and thine understanding inexhaustible, and that it is like unto a lamp in the darkness, and like unto a pomegranate in the garden, and like unto a pearl in the sea, and like unto the morning star among other stars, and like unto the light of the moon in the mist, and like unto a glorious dawn and sunrise in the heavens. Now it should be noted that the reference to the morning star here is a reference to the planet Venus when oriental and rising before dawn. Venus is the brightest object in the night sky, after the moon, and has long held symbolism of splendor, magnificence, and beauty. There is no allusion to the devil intended, although, as we shall see, Solomon is said, in many traditions, to have exercised power over spirits and demons. Indeed, the Kebra Nagast alludes to this legend when it writes that Solomon forced the devils to obey him by his wisdom. After this exchange, Solomon replies to the queen that she too must be wise, for she is seeking wisdom, and that he has come by wisdom only as far as God has given it to him. Then it was never of his own devices, but a gift from on high. Quoting the Kebra Nagast, For from being only dust, he hath made me flesh, and from being only water, he hath made me a solid man, and from being only an ejected drop, which shot forth upon the ground would have dried up on the surface of the earth, he hath fashioned me in his own likeness, and hath made me in his own image. Solomon at this point stops a laborer carrying a stone upon his head, and compares himself to the laborer, saying he is no better, that they are equal, and that all men live and all men die, and each has his talents, uses, and services to the performance of the divine will. Solomon espouses compassion, love, cooperation, righteousness, and humility. And God loveth the lowly-minded, and those who practice humility walk in his way, and they shall rejoice in his kingdom, Solomon says. The devil is arrogant and haughty. Blessed is the man who knoweth wisdom, that is to say, compassion and the fear of God. The queen of Sheba promises never to worship the sun, but the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, saying that the tabernacle of the God of Israel shall be unto me my lady, and unto my seed after me, and unto all my kingdoms that are under my dominion. They became friends. Solomon answered all her questions over a period of six months until the queen made ready to leave and return to her kingdom in Ethiopia. At this point, Solomon realized realizes what he must do. A woman of such splendid beauty hath come to me from the ends of the earth, exclaimed Solomon to himself. What do I know? Will God give me seed in her? As the book of Kings notes, Solomon was a lover of women. He counted Hebrews, Egyptians, Canaanites, Edomites, Moabites, Syrians, and other women among his 700 wives. And let's not forget, he had 300 concubines as well. The Kebra Nagast says he had 400 queens and 600 concubines, but why trifle? That should be enough to exhaust any man, but not Solomon, who was, evidently, not only wise.
Interestingly, the Kebra Nagast, which is redacted predominantly as a Christian book, explains away Solomon's polygamy by saying that he followed the pledge God gave Abraham to multiply his progeny like the stars of heaven, and that he was using his wisdom besides, because by producing a lot of children, he could overcome the unholy in the region by sending his sons and daughters out into the world. However, the book then adds that these, I quote, early peoples lived under the law of the flesh, for the grace of the Holy Spirit had not been given unto them. And it goes on to caution, somewhat presciently, lest anyone be inspired to emulate Solomon in ways other than his prodigious wisdom. I quote, Those who marry many wives seek their own punishment. He who marrieth one wife hath no sin. Having had the benefits of an amorous youth, I tend to agree with this advice. Anyway, back to the story. So the Queen of Sheba is readying to leave on the morrow. And Solomon realizes he's out of time. The queen, who must have sensed his feelings, makes him promise that night not to take her by force. Solomon gladly assents to this rather shocking statement, but only if she likewise promises to take nothing in his house by force, either. She agrees, and so the pact is made. Solomon now gets a little crafty. And with wise intent, says the book, Solomon sent her meats which would make her thirsty, and drinks that were mingled with vinegar, and fish, and dishes made with pepper. In the midst of the night, then, the queen awakens with a terrible thirst. She, of course, reaches for a nearby carafe of water to slake her parched throat when, we might imagine, all the lights come on, and Solomon, standing in the shadows, steps forward with a half-smile on his face. Why hast thou broken the oath that thou hast sworn that thou wouldst not take by force anything that is in my house? Solomon asks. And she answered him, we presume tremulously, Is the oath broken by my drinking water? To which he replies, and we must believe with a twinkle in his eye, Is there anything that thou hast seen under the heavens that is better than water? I have sinned against myself, she admits, but let me drink water for my thirst. Am I perchance free from the oath which thou hast made me answer? He then asks, Be free from thy oath, only let me drink water. And the rest needs no words. However, importantly, Solomon has a dream in the midst of the night, a brilliant sun shining splendor over Israel. But then it withdraws and flies away to Ethiopia, and shines with great brightness forever, for it willed to dwell there, the Kebra Nagast says. Solomon awakens and interprets the dream as the Spirit of God shining on a foreign land in a future time as a result of the sin of Israel violating the covenant with the Lord. And when Solomon the king saw his vision in his sleep, his soul became disturbed, and his understanding was snatched away as by lightning, and he woke with an agitated mind. And moreover, Solomon marveled concerning the queen, for she was vigorous in strength, and beautiful of form, and she was undefiled in her virginity, and she had reigned for six years in her own country, and, notwithstanding her gracious attraction and her splendid form, had preserved her body pure. Apparently, Solomon is immortal after all and all the wisdom in the world is still no match for a woman.' 
but I digress. At this point, Solomon gives the queen whatever she asks for, and she leaves for Ethiopia, a conqueror, with Solomon a little vanquished. Solomon gives her some incredible stuff, including, and I quote, a vessel wherein one could travel over the sea, and a vessel wherein one could traverse the air, which Solomon had made by the wisdom that God had given unto him. Of interest to every royal archmason, Solomon also gave her a signet ring to give to his child, if a son, by which he could recognize him in the future. And Solomon took her aside so that they might be alone together, and he took off the ring that was on his little finger, which is, of course, a signet ring, and he gave it to the queen and said unto her, Take this, so that thou mayest not forget me, and if it happen that I obtain seed from thee, this ring shall be unto it a sign, and if it be a man-child, he shall come to me, and the peace of God be with thee. The queen of Sheba did indeed bear a son, Menelik, and when he was twenty-two, he went to visit Solomon, wearing the signet to identify him to the king. The Kebra Nagast establishes that Menelik was of a great likeness to his father, so much so that on his travels to Jerusalem through Judah, many people gave him gifts, mistaking him to be Solomon. Eventually, Solomon anoints him, consecrates him, and sets him apart to be King David of Ethiopia. Now, to this day, the kingdom of Ethiopia has within its constitution the provision that only a descendant of King David can occupy the throne. It is Menelik I, this King David, to which the constitution refers. For example, the last emperor of Ethiopia, who reigned from 1916 to 1974, was Haile Selassie, whose name means Power of the Trinity. His full title was, get this, His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie, Conquering Lion of the Tribe of Judah, King of Kings of Ethiopia, Elect of God. Tradition says that Menelik, now King David, was given the Ark of the Covenant by Solomon, and a replica was placed in the Sanctum Sanctorum of the Temple. Many people believe the Ark is still in Ethiopia to this day, at Oxum. The meeting of Solomon and Sheba, as recorded by the Quran. The story in the Quran is much more fantastical and poetic, if more brief. The imagery is rich and concerns only the conversion of the queen to the worship of the true God. According to the Quran, Solomon, who was able to converse with all animals freely, as the rabbinical tradition also records, one day noticed a hopo bird was missing. I will punish him with a severe penalty or execute him unless he bring me a clear reason for his absence, Solomon says. But the bird returns with news of a different country, Sheba, where the queen hath been given abundance of all things, and hers is a mighty throne, the bird says. But the hopo bird explains the queen and her people are sun worshippers, bowing to a false god, tricked by Satan into believing in their false piety. So Solomon sends the queen a letter, exhorting her for her idolatry, calling her to come before him in Jerusalem. The queen, fearing wrath and war, and mistaking the intent of the letter, sends him a gift of money. 
but Solomon is not placated at all. Will you give me abundance in wealth? He rhetorically asks. But that which the one has given me is better than that which he has given you. Nay, it is ye who rejoice in your gift. So Solomon sends the hopo bird back with threats of war. Then Solomon, who commanded demons and spirits, calls out the jinn. O chiefs, which of you can bring me her throne before they come to me in submission? He asks, I will bring it to thee before thou rise from thy counsel. Indeed, I have full strength for the purpose and may be trusted, says one of the spirits. I will bring it to thee within the twinkling of an eye, said one who had knowledge of the book. Then, the story goes, the throne appeared before Solomon. When the queen of Sheba arrived in Jerusalem, seeing her throne there disposed and a watery floor turned to crystal and the wonders of the temple, she renounced her idolatry and came to the worship of the one true God. The legendary meeting between these two personalities has been an inspiration across the millennia. No matter how their meeting occurred or what actually happened, we can take enjoyment in the rich tradition of Solomon, our Grand Master, and recognize that there was likely a common source for all these interpretations, including the Bible, that have come down to us through a succession of ages to impart lessons well learned, tried, and true throughout the passage of time. Queen of Sheba in literature and art. So 1 Kings 10 has a relatively brief account of the queen meeting with Solomon. 2 Chronicles 9 is basically a repeat of 1 Kings 10. The Jewish historian Josephus mentions her in Book 8, Chapter 6 of his Antiquities of the Jews, written in 93 AD. A clan in Nigeria lays claim to heritage from the Queen of Sheba, and that a series of ditches and walls built in the 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries comprise a monument to her greatness. She's inspired a slew of movies. Betty Blythe played her in the 1921 movie The Queen of Sheba. Eleonora Rofo played her in the 1952 movie The Queen of Sheba. Gina Lola Brigida played her in the 1959 movie Solomon and Sheba, and Haley Berry played her in the 1995 television show Solomon and Sheba. Well, don't go away. We have upcoming for your enjoyment Chapter 5 of Heinrich Cornelius. Agrippa of Nettesheim's Three Books of Occult Philosophy. Hang tight, and I'll be right back. Chapter 5 Of the Wonderful Natures of Fire and Earth There are two things, saith Hermes, viz. fire and earth, which are sufficient for the operation of all wonderful things. The former is active, the latter passive. Fire, as saith Dionysius, in all things, and through all things, comes and goes away bright. It is in all things bright, and at the same time occult 
and unknown. When it is by itself, no other matter coming to it in which it should manifest its proper action, it is boundless and invisible, of itself sufficient for every action that is proper to it, movable, yielding itself after a manner to all things that come next to it, renewing, guarding nature, enlightening, not comprehended by lights that are veiled over, clear, parted, leaping back, bending upwards, quick in motion, high, always raising motions, comprehending another, not comprehended itself, not standing in need of another, secretly increasing of itself, and manifesting its greatness to things that receive it. Active, powerful, invisibly present in all things at once, it will not be affronted or opposed, but as it were in a way of revenge, it will reduce on a sudden things into obedience to itself, incomprehensible, impalpable, not lessened, most rich in all dispensations of itself. Fire, as saith Pliny, is the boundless, the mischievous part of the nature of things, it being a question whether it destroys or produceth most things. Fire itself is one, and penetrates through all things, as say the Pythagoreans, also spread abroad in the heavens, and shining, but in the infernal place straightened, dark and tormenting, in the midway it partakes of both. Fire, therefore, in itself is one, but in that which receives it, manifold, and in differing subjects it is distributed in a different manner, as Celanthes witnesseth in Cicero. That fire, then, which we use is fetched out of other things. It is in stones, and is fetched out by the stroke of the steel. It is in earth, and makes that, after digging up, to smoke. It is in water, and heats springs and wells. It is in the depth of the sea, and makes that, being tossed with winds, warm. It is in the air, and makes it, as we oftentimes see, to burn. And all animals and living things whatsoever, and also all vegetables are preserved by heat, and everything that lives, lives by reason of the enclosed heat. The properties of the fire that is above are heat, making all things fruitful, and light, giving life to all things. The properties of the infernal fire are the parched heat, consuming all things, and darkness, making all things barren. The celestial and bright fire, drives away spirits of darkness. Also, this our fire made with wood, drives away the same, inasmuch as it hath an analogy with, and is the vehiculum of that superior light, as also of him who saith, I am the light of the world, which is true fire, the father of lights, from whom every good thing that is given comes, sending forth the light of his fire, and communicating it first to the sun, and the rest of the celestial bodies, and by these, as by mediating instruments conveying that light into our fire. As therefore the spirits of darkness are stronger in the dark, so good spirits, which are angels of light, are augmented not only by that light, which is divine, of the sun and celestial, but also by the light of our common fire. Hence it was that the first and most wise institutors of religions and ceremonies ordained that prayers, singings, and all manner of divine worships whatsoever should not be performed without lighted candles or torches. Hence also was that significant saying of Pythagoras, Do not speak of God without light. 
and they commanded that for the driving away of wicked spirits, lights and fires should be kindled by the corpses of the dead, and that they should not be removed until the expiations were after a holy manner performed and they buried. And the great Jehovah himself in the old law commanded that all his sacrifices should be offered with fire, and that fire should always be burning upon the altar, which custom the priests of the altar did always observe and keep amongst the Romans. Now the basis and foundation of all the elements is the earth, for that is the object, subject, and receptacle of all celestial rays and influences. In it are contained the seeds and seminal virtues of all things, and therefore it is said to be animal, vegetable, and mineral. It being made fruitful by the other elements and the heavens brings forth all things of itself. It receives the abundance of all things, and is, as it were, the first fountain from whence all things spring. It is the center, foundation, and mother of all things. Take as much of it as you please, separated, washed, depurated, subtilized. If you let it lie in the open air a little while, it will, being full and abounding with heavenly virtues, of itself bring forth plants, worms, and other living things, also stones and bright sparks of metals. In it are great secrets. If at any time it shall be purified by the help of fire, and reduced unto its simplicity by a convenient washing, it is the first matter of our creation, and the truest medicine that can restore and preserve us. So of interest, perhaps, there at the end is an allusion to what some have taken to read, a spontaneous generation from the matter of earth. And perhaps it is true that in the older days it was believed that earth itself had a remarkable generative property, uh, that basically insects and small life forms could spontaneously emerge, uh, much actually as the plague and the miasmas of old were said to spontaneously come forth to afflict the multitude, uh, perhaps as a result of transgression or sins against God. I'm not entirely sure that is untrue um, in, in, in the sense of um, a modern looking back at the reading. However, I think there is also a more subtle insinuation to the text that doesn't necessarily rely exclusively on this generative principle in matter, but that there is a material principia, a principal material from which all other forms are generable when it comes to the vessel that is shaped for the dwelling of the spirit. And I'll let you contemplate that. that's it. Thank you for listening this far. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website, rockymountainmason.com. Visit our parent company, laughinglion.net. We have some items that may be of interest for your collection there, all small batch, exclusively made, high quality items, including our Templar rosary, handmade in Italy to a limited number of only 40 
with sterling silver, obsidian, throughout. Check out www.laughinglion.net. And until next time, take care and Godspeed.